Here we are again on a Wednesday night, enjoying a beautiful summer night. God has blessed us every Wednesday with a wonderful, wonderful weather, and it's been so good to be together. We're so glad as a church family that we don't have to restrict the number of people that can come and worship with us on a Wednesday night, and nor do you have to sign up or write up your name or ask for a reservation. Everyone and anyone is welcome on any Wednesday night to come and to join and to hear the good news that Jesus can and does, in fact, make a difference in your life. He's made a difference in my life. He's made a difference in the team's life that, that serve here and the volunteers, everyone you see that's serving the people you met at the gate, the people that are playing music here, the people in the background that you don't see. Christ has made a difference for us, and we're just so glad to be able to share that and celebrate that. Tonight, we have a special guest speaker, Pastor Frank Kerlicki from Medicine Hat, and he's coming to share. It's just nice to hear a different voice once in a while. So I'm so glad that Pastor Frank agreed to come and to share the word tonight with us and just to talk about the difference that Jesus makes from a different voice and different perspective. So let's give Frank Kerlicki just a new life welcome as he comes and shares God's word with us. How about instead of saying amen, we just honk our horns? I, I like that. That's awesome. I bring greetings to you from brothers and sisters in the Lord that you probably haven't met yet from Medicine Hat, Alberta. That's where we hail from, Medicine Hat, Alberta. And uh, I'm thankful uh, to Pastor Mike and to the church for the invitation to come up here and to open up God's Word and to share. I have preached in a lot of different type of places. I've never preached in quite one like this. But good on you guys. This is awesome. This is exciting. What a, what a unique and, and a fresh way to, um, to share the good news while also worshiping the one and only true God. First, I want to, uh, before I begin, just introduce my wife, Sherry. She's uh, right there. I'll ask her to stand. You can honk if you like. I could really get into this honking in church. Uh, she's, uh, she's been a junior high high school teacher and vice principal for 15 years, most recently at the Medicine Hat Christian School. We have one daughter, Stephanie. She's a librarian. She lives in Medicine Hat with her husband, Ben, who works at a department store. We also have a son, Christopher. He uh, lives in Edmonton. He's single, and he kind of takes after me. He's a fitness instructor. Don't find that very funny at all. He, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he's uh, been just into sports and loves the fitness side of things. And so we're just so, um, so excited to have two children who uh, still live for the Lord, love Jesus, and uh, continue to serve him in, in, in their own fields of expertise. For me, I've been uh, in full-time ministry for over 25 years. I've uh, last served in Rosemary, Alberta. And I've served in all sorts of different types of positions, from youth pastor, children's pastor, all the way up to uh, the lead and solo pastor. I'll tell you this. My wife and I and our kids, we're sold out for Jesus. We are passionate about building up God's church and reaching out into the world to spread his good news. And that's why we're here today. So would you pray with me as I, I ask God's blessing? Father God, thank you for this creation. What a beautiful night. The sun is still shining, the clouds, the breeze, the warmth, the fellowship of oneness that is found here today. Amongst all of this, Lord, I ask you that you would use me as your humble servant, that you would take the words that I'm uttering today and that you make them make sense 
in the hearts of the people here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. In your name I do pray. Amen. My wife and I had uh, an honor of walking through our special museum. You see, on Sunday, April 14th in 1912, at 11.40 p.m. off the shores of Newfoundland, the Titanic, the, the fastest ship ever built during her time, considered practically unsinkable by Shipbuilder magazine. Well, we know the story. It struck an iceberg, and it sank, taking with her over 1,500 lives. Well, Sherry and I had, a, had an opportunity in one of our holidays to go to the Titanic Museum. It was a, a very somber experience for us. As you entered, each person is given, I know you probably can't see it, but it's an exact duplicate of the boarding pass that each person would have received on the Titanic. And each one had a name of an actual passenger on that fateful night. My ticket that I was given was purchased by a Mr. Engelhart Ospie, wealthy man, him and his wife. They owned one of the largest drillery um, places in all of Europe. In fact, um, we're told that they were the uh, largest purveyor of gold rings in all of Europe and North America. My wife's ticket that she was given, it was purchased by a Mrs. Winnie Coots and her two children. She was planning to travel on the Titanic to North America to visit and, and, and to, to move to meet her husband who's, who'd gone on ahead to prepare uh, a place for them in the new world. And, you know, as you, as you walked around the museum with these tickets in your hands, you're reading and you're listening, you're watching and you're experiencing, and it was all done in silence because you didn't dare speak out of respect knowing how many people perished that night. And then you come to, to the end of the museum. One gigantic wall, all black. And on the wall was a list. It was a list of all of those who had made it. And then on the other side was a list of all those who, who didn't make it. And, and we were encouraged to take our tickets and to find the name of that passenger on one of the two lists. On the, the lost list. Or were they on the saved list? You see, everyone in the world is on one of those two lists. You're lost or you're saved. So I ask you tonight, which are you? Lost or saved? I mean, if you're saved, it means you've been rescued from death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. You have been spared from an eternity without God. And you are saved not by anything you, that you've done, but by the free gift of eternal life given to us by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his death on the cross and his rising from the dead. You are saved because you believe in Jesus. You, you've accepted his gift of salvation. And you've stopped trying to earn your reward. And now you are working out your salvation, learning how to live like Jesus. And allowing God to slowly change your life from what it was to what God wants it to be. So God no longer sees you as being marred by sin. Instead, upon your acceptance of Jesus, 
by his blood. We are told his blood that covers all of our sins. It, it, it cleanses us from our sins. And so that means the old has gone and the new has come. Ephesians 2 says this, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and he seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's if you're saved. Now, if you're lost, it means you aren't saved. It means you aren't rescued. That's what lost means. You haven't been rescued yet, which in turn means that you are dead, spiritually. Spiritually dead, spiritually bankrupt. You will have an eternity without God. And you're lost not because you have somehow been loved less by God, but it's because you have chosen not to accept the free gift of eternal life that's been offered to you by Jesus. You have chosen instead to live life the way you want to, by your own set of rules, your own personal set of beliefs, and your own moral code and standards. That makes you a sinner, marred by your sin, having not accepted the forgiveness of Jesus. Again, I turn to Ephesians 2. As for you, it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were in nature, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's how God sees the lost. Dead, disobedient, selfish, and deserving of God's wrath. Man, I, I'm glad the story doesn't end here. Because just as much as God loves those who are saved, I sometimes think he loves those that are lost even more. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I ask you again, which one are you? Which one are you? You see, in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, it, it, it paints a beautiful picture of how Jesus views the lost. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, don't miss this, folks. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest, it's, it's plentiful. 
Man, it's huge. But the workers, they're few. So let's ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Listen again to how Jesus feels about those who are lost. He doesn't hate them. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Compassion. That's, that's defined as, as having a deep sympathy. But you know what? Our English translation does not do a good job with this word compassion in the original language. It's, compassion is too weak of a word. He doesn't just have a deep feeling of sympathy. He has something that we call in the Greek, spalanktha. Spalanktha. See, in the original language of this text, felt compassion is one word. And that's, I love it, spalanktha. Try saying that, spalanktha. Yeah, that's good, I like that. It doesn't sound very pretty. And it doesn't sound pretty for good reason. This word for compassion, it's a descriptive word. And it literally means the bowels. The bowels. You know, when we want to express love and compassion today, we choose to use a different part of our body, a different organ. We use the heart. Heart sounds a lot nicer than bowels, doesn't it? Imagine me trying to give my wife, on our anniversary, a card that read, Honey, I love you with all my bowels. Now that's a moving experience. You can honk on that one if you like that one. I got a couple honks. Okay, that's good. But you know, there's a good reason for using this descriptive word in this context. Because when you really feel emotional, where do you feel it? You don't feel it in your heart. You feel it in your gut. We don't get butterflies in our heart. We get them in our stomachs. That first time we men picked up the phone to call that special girl and we asked her out, we felt that in our spalanktha. In our spalanktha. When the doctor has crushing news from the results of your blood test or biopsy, you feel that news in your spalanktha. So when Jesus saw all the people who were lost, his breath was literally taken away. He was hit, if you, if you would, in his solar plexus. He was bent over in discomfort at seeing at all the people that were going to an eternal existence without God. It got him in a spalanctha. It was an immediate and physical response. He felt it in his bowels. And he felt this way because they were distressed, Scripture says. Remember? Distressed. And they were downcast. Like sheep without a shepherd. Again, we can't overlook the language that Jesus is using here. The two words uh, translated as distressed and downcast are not only highly descriptive words, but they're actually violent words. Distressed is translated better as harassed or even molested. And the word downcast is actually a wrestling term that, it be, that can be translated as to be pinned down by force. So if we fully want to understand and appreciate the splengtha, the compassion of Christ for the lost people that consider it in this fresh context. Imagine, imagine with me, you're, you're walking along a dark, path, a, a dark park path when you hear a muffled cry, followed by some, some heavy grunts and noises. 
as you turn to look for the noise, you're overcome by what you see. You see a big man who's violently pinned down a woman. And she is kicking and screaming to get up. This is how Jesus sees the lost, distressed and violently pinned down by their sin. I mean, if you saw this scene, you would not think twice, I would hope, about whether or not you should care about this lady. If you saw this scene, you would not think twice about helping this woman. Instinctively, I would hope and I would believe. And immediately, you'd be overcome by rage and disgust. You would be moved to a rapid response in defense of this poor woman. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? We don't stand there wondering if the woman is worthy to be rescued or, or whether she's lived a life that would allow her to be rescued. We don't wonder if she somehow deserves this treatment by this man. Because Jesus didn't care. He didn't care about all those things. He says in John 3.17, I've not come to judge the world. I've come to save it. I don't care what, what's happened in your life. I don't care what you were addicted to or what you still are addicted. I, I don't care about all of that. I've come not to judge you, but I've come to rescue you. I've come to save you. Jesus has come to save those people that are distressed and violently pinned down by their sin. And when Jesus sees people, when he sees the lost, this is how he sees them. And he feels it in its palangtha. So which are you? Which one are you? Are you the lost? Or are you the saved? Let me go a little further and get to the main portion of our text today. And I want to explain a little bit more about Jesus' love for those that are in need of being rescued. In John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we are told that Jesus left Judea and he went once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's what the text says. The Bible tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Which is very interesting. Because to go from Judea to Galilee, one did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, all Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. They would cross the Jordan River and travel on the east side of the river to go to and from Judea and Galilee. To, to, to go to Samaria was unheard of for a good Jew, just like it would be for a good BC boy to cheer for the Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, folks. Go Canucks, go. It's just not done. Yet the word of God, which does not lie, tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So if it wasn't a geographical need, it must have been a spiritual need. You see, Jesus knew that he had to go to Samaria because he had to accomplish something. He had to complete a mission. And in this case, it meant going to a place, Samaria, it meant speaking with someone, who we'll be introduced to shortly. It meant going to a place that good Jewish men did not dare to go. And it meant to speak to a person that good Jewish men would never speak to. 
It meant Jesus had to take a risk to be on mission. It, it meant Jesus, Jesus' mission was a rescue mission. And he was on a rescue mission at great risk to Samaria. You see, he heard the cries of the people who were being distressed and violently pinned down by their sins. He heard they were dying spiritually all around him in Samaria. And so he had to go. He had no other response because of Spalanctha, because of compassion. The text I want to read is, is, I think it's found in your handout, John 4, 4 to 15. Let me continue to read. And he had come to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So Jesus crossed a religious boundary by being in Samaria. Jesus crossed a cultural boundary by speaking with a woman. Jesus crossed a social boundary by speaking with an adulterous woman. And we'll learn about that a little bit later. But Jesus, he just went to where the need was, regardless of what boundary there was, because of Spalancha. He took some big risks because he wanted this woman to know all about the living water. Water that will quench any thirst. Water that will never run out. Water that gives eternal life. And so the Samaritan woman said, Give me this water. She had a need. She was thirsty. I think at this point she thought that this person named Jesus, he might have some kind of magical water that one hears about in fairy tales. You see, we learn a little later in the story that she's an adulterer. She's had five husbands and is now on her sixth. That's why she's out in the hottest part of the day drawing from a well. Nobody, not even her own people, wanted anything to do with her. No one wanted to be around her. She was lonely, she was feeling guilty, and she was thirsty. She had a need. But this man, Jesus, if he could give her magic, never-ending water, so she would never have to come out again in the noonday sun. Yes, of course, she wants some of that. 
But then Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Ouch. Ouch. Got a little personal there between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This is where we learn of the multitude of partners that this woman has had in her life. We learn of her life of immorality. We learn her secret sin. She is violently pinned down and in distress. Only she doesn't really know it. Or, or maybe she just can't appreciate the full ramifications of it. And now this man, Jesus, is not just a man to her anymore. He must be a prophet. Because how else would he know about her past? So he must be a prophet. And so the Samaritan woman at this point didn't like where this conversation was going. This talk of magic water was okay, but now she realizes that this prophet is addressing her sins. And that has become way too uncomfortable for her. So she decides to argue, to start a debate, to distract Jesus, to redirect the conversation. She says, well, well, our fathers, they worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, you claim the place where we should worship is in Jerusalem. So, you know, you know. So she starts up the old age debate. Which religion is right? You see, if you get pinned down in a sin, you start fighting back because you don't want to talk. It's too personal. So she starts to debate which religion is right. Is ours right because we worship here? Is yours right because you worship over there? Which church is the right church? Who should I really listen to? It's a debate that drives people away from God. Not closer. Not closer. It's a debate which draws attention away from sin and puts the focus on the faults of churches and religion. And there are a lot of faults in churches and religions. But we don't need to focus there because the focus ought to be on the sin and how we could rescue them. But you know, Jesus, he doesn't bite on this argument. Instead, he says, well, listen to this. A time will come when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The time has come for the true worshipers to worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, there is no debate because it doesn't matter where you worship, if it's in a building or in the parking lot on a Wednesday evening with the sun beautifully setting. As long as God, the one and true God, the only living God, he's the one that is being worshiped. And you do so in spirit and truth. So now Jesus kind of has her on the, on the ropes, if you will. So she responds with, well, okay, I get all that. But I know that the Messiah, you know, called Christ, that he's going to be coming soon. And when he comes, he will explain everything to me. Well, this is the Samaritan's woman's last attempt to avoid the issue of her sin and her true spiritual need and state. This whole issue is much too big for me to understand. Much too big for a prophet like Jesus to understand. So let's just all wait until that Messiah guy shows up. Like so many of us want to do. We want to wait till later. I don't have to make a decision right now about my spiritual state. 
I don't have to make a decision right now about where I will end up someday. I'm going to live my life now. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. I will just wait until the Messiah comes. I'll do all of this later. While well, then Jesus stares at her square in the eyes and says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm God. You see, Jesus was on a rescue mission. Jesus was overcome by Spelankla for this woman that he risked everything for her. So Jesus came to the, to, into Samaria to rescue her, to save her, just like he did for you and for me when he died on the cross, when he risked his own life and died on a cross, but rose three days later. That is Spelankla. And you know what? Christ's death and his resurrection, it demands a response. It demands a response. Back to the Titanic Museum, we, we get to the end of the museum, to that wall, and we take out our tickets and we're looking for our two people. Mine, Mr. Engelhart Osby, largest producers of gold rings in all the world. I found his name. He was rich. This guy had everything. He was lost. He was lost. Sherry took her ticket out, tried to find Mrs. Winnie Coots, the one who was going with her children to be with her husband in North America. We found her name. She was saved. She was saved. It's funny, that story of, of Mrs. Winnie Coots. She was originally slated to ride up in first class, tickets that her husband bought her, but her being a, a spendthrift woman and trying to plan for the future, she turned those first class tickets in to steerage tickets to save money so they'd have more money in their pockets when they got to see their husband. It was almost the most terrible mistake she'd ever made in her life. Because it was while that she was in the steerage class that she found herself and her boys locked behind a gate with the flood waters rising after the ship had hit the iceberg. Everyone ignored their screams. They're, they screamed for help. They were frantically waving to be led up to the top deck. Nobody would do anything. Not until an unknown deck officer noticed them. He not only opened the locked gate for them and letting them up to the top deck. But he also gave up his vest, his life vest, when he realized that they didn't have any life vests for themselves. And you know, Winnie's situation is so, it's just like so many of people's situations today. They're in distress. They're violently pinned down by their own sin, by their own choosing, by their own actions. And they're headed to an eternal death a life without God, they're lost. But if that's you tonight, if that's you, Jesus loves you. It's such a self-sacrificing love. You don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his love. But it's ours to accept. This free gift of salvation, it's ours to accept it if we want it. And Jesus offers this free gift because he has compassion upon us. He is Spelanctha. He knows that for those who choose not to follow him, 
that their eternity is an eternity of darkness, an eternity of loneliness, an eternity of regret and guilt. And the thought of any one of his children having to live eternity in that way, he feels that in his bowels, my brothers and sisters. He, it doubles him over in pain. Spalanctha. And so he offered himself to death to pay our penalty for our sins. He paid the debt that you and I owe to God. So which are you? Which are you? Are you lost or are you saved? Have you been rescued? Well, I believe that God tonight wants to rescue someone. Maybe it's you. Because he paid a price, his death, so that you could be saved, that you could be rescued. So in essence, he wants to unlock the gate that's been keeping you imprisoned. He wants to help you up the stairs, and he wants you up on the top deck, and he's even given you his own life rest. Now, if you would like to accept his rescue, if you would like to take his hand of salvation, then I'm going to invite you to do so right now. If you, wherever you are, in the car, in the, in, in the chairs, if you're across at the service station, who can hear me? Just, just bow your head if you want to. Close your eyes, whatever you want to do. But just thank God. Thank God right now for wanting to rescue you. Just thank him. And then tell him that you want to be rescued. He needs to hear you say it. Tell him, I want to be rescued. Acknowledge to him that you know you're a sinner. That you're trying to live the life your way. Admit that you need him. Just tell him, I need you. Ask him to rescue you. Ask him to save you. Ask him. Amen. You know, you may be an object of God's wrath for how you choose to live your life your way, but God has compassion for you. He is doubled over in pain, desiring so much that you would accept him. He wants to turn that wrath into forgiveness. He wants you to live and not die spiritually. He wants you to live eternity with him, not without him. So which are you? Which are you? If you're saved, if you're here tonight and you're saved, that means you're rescued. That's good news. But it means you're on a mission, folks. I wasn't going to let you off the hook. You think I was? You're on a rescue mission that may require you to take some great risks. Let me finish my Titanic story, and then we'll conclude. When that officer, that deckhand, gave Winnie and her two sons his only life preserver, this unknown officer said to Winnie, if you get safe, save as many people as you can. He gave Winnie a mission. In the midst of her needing to save herself or be saved, he, was given, she was, he gave her a mission. Now when the Titanic left England on her maiden voyage to New York City, the white star line that built her spared no expense in building her. It was the most luxurious, luxurious ocean liner there was. It was a legend even before she set sail. The passengers were a mixture of the world's wealthiest men and women, and they were basking in the elegance and ambiance of the Titanic. But it also was 
was, was packed full of, of immigrants in the, in the bottom of the ship in the steerage who are looking to, looking to, to get the strike it, to start a new life in the new world. She was touted as the safest ship ever built, so safe that she only carried 20 lifeboats, just enough to provide accommodations for about half of the 2,200 people and crew. You see, the reason was the belief was that the ship was unsinkable. So her lifeboats would only be necessary to rescue survivors from other sinking ships because their ship's never going to sink. Four days into her journey, you know the story. 11.40 p.m., April 14th, she struck an iceberg and she sank. 1,522 people perished that night. And of the 20 lifeboats that she carried, only half of them were ever filled completely. The rest of the people who survived the sinking were armed with life vests and bobbed in the icy water awaiting rescue. But rescue did not come for most of them. You see, those that made it to the lifeboats, they panicked. Even though most were only half full, they rode and they rode and they rode. They put as much distance between themselves and that sinking ship because they were desperate to survive. But they were so desperate to survive that they ignored the wailing calls of help me, help me, of over a thousand people floating in icy cold water that could be heard for miles away, people said. Help me, help me. The people who died in the water, they didn't die because of a lack of lifeboats. They died because those that were saved did nothing to rescue them. If you get safe, save as many people as you can. Which are you? Are you saved? Are you rescued? Good. Excellent. You're in the lifeboat. Don't take off. Go. Help. Save as many people as you can. As people who have once been lost, but are now saved, go and do to others what has been done for you. Start to feel the spelanctha when you hear the cries of people who are dying spiritually all around you, at work, in school, in your neighborhood, in your family, the people who live next door to you. Tell them about Jesus. Share your Jesus story. You don't have to be knowledgeable in the Greek and the Hebrew and the, all the Leviticus and all those others. Just tell them your Jesus story. I once was lost. I met Jesus and now I'm saved. And tell them how much he has changed your life. Do it so that one day they too can sing and give praise to a wonderful God and embark on their own mission to reach people who are lost. Let's pray together and I'll call the worship team forward. Father God, we do not deserve what you have given us. Positionally, we're objects of wrath. Living life the way we want to live it. Worrying about tomorrow. Putting it off for another day. 
But your death and your resurrection, your, what you did for us on the cross, the blood that you shed, that demands a response from us. And so if, if anybody here tonight uh, prayed a prayer asking to be rescued, I would encourage you to come and talk to someone in the worship team, myself or Pastor Mike. For those of us that have been rescued, I pray for you this. Do, do not find yourself in a half-filled lifeboat. Go. You're on a mission. And your mission is to go and tell people about Jesus. Thank you, God, for what you have done. You're an awesome God. In your name we do pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen. And they honked? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>